in Nehemiah, beginning to read in chapter 1, and we'll work through verse 10 of chapter 2. And so this is a longer passage than we're typically accustomed to, because this book is in slightly different format. So follow along carefully as the details unfold for us here in Nehemiah chapter 1. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah, now it happened in the months of Chivzlev, in the 20th year as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, The remnant there in the province who has survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant, that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people, whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was the cupbearer to the king. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, why is your face sad, seeing you're not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad? When the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire. Then the king said to me, what are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, how long will you be gone and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given to the governors of the province beyond the river, that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple and for the wall of the city and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, it displeased them greatly. 
that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. And Father, as we come to your word this morning, we ask that you would speak to us through this ancient book, a book, though, that you breathed out and have given to us for our upbuilding, our encouragement, and our instruction. And so, Lord, we ask that you would speak, for your servants are listening. Amen. As a freshman at Furman University in 1994, I connected with a group of other freshmen, young guys, who were deeply involved in a local Presbyterian church and in their college ministry. The church was gracious enough to dedicate one staff person to our particular care. His name was Ken Curry, and Ken was very good to us. He fed us, he taught us, he challenged us, and he fed us some more. That was about the order of things for us. And as I reflect back, I clearly see what his job description and task was and how he went about it. It was fairly simple as he dealt with a very distractible young group of men who were filled with all kinds of pride and filled with all kinds of insecurity, all kinds of ambitions and all kinds of doubts. And as he shepherded us through that period of life, the basic formula was this, not that, but this, constant redirection constantly redirecting us. He was pointing us away from the dangerous ravines of life and drawing us to the green pastures. And in doing so, what Ken did for so many of us was that he was teaching us to build our lives around the promises of God. This, not that. Build here. This is where God has promised. This is where God has blessing. This is what a whole and full and good life looks like. And this is what the book of Nehemiah is about. It's about a man who builds his life around the promises of God. But it is, of course, easy to get lost in the details of Nehemiah's life. He was a particularly impressive individual. We learned in the passage that he was a cupbearer to the Persian emperor. He was also an Israelite. But to be the cupbearer was to be one of the most trusted people in the entire empire. He would drink the king's wine before he himself consumed it to see if it was poisoned or not. But he wasn't simply a house servant. The cupbearer was oftentimes a trusted ally, something like sitting in the president's cabinet. This was the role that Nehemiah played inside the reign of Artaxerxes, one of the most powerful men in that time around uh, the 5th century B.C., one of the most powerful men in all the world. And so he is impressive. He is accomplished. And then we'll learn as the book goes on that in 52 days, he overcomes all kinds of opposition to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. And so many people read the book of Nehemiah, and they're so impressed by Nehemiah himself that they miss the point completely. The point of the book is that Nehemiah was not just so impressive, but rather that his greatness consists in his willingness to build his life around the promises of God, to allow God to redirect him, to allow God to change his course, to move him from Susa into trouble in Jerusalem. And you see, Nehemiah didn't invite God to bless what he had already independently decided to do. Rather, Nehemiah sought to bring his life in line with what God said he was doing in the world. 
And that is where Nehemiah's greatness really is. He brought his life in line with the promise of God. And this is what God invites you and I to do as well. He invites us to do it here in Jacksonville or wherever God might perhaps take you. That we are invited to bring our lives into concert, in line with the promises of God. Not to invite God into the story that we're scripting, but into the story that God has been writing since our world was plunged into chaos and sin and what God is now doing to write it. To join him, to ask that our lives be brought in line with his promise. And so what exactly does that look like, though? This is what these first two chapters of Nehemiah will instruct us in. There's three things that we'll find across these two chapters. First piece of this, in verse 1 through 4, we see that we must learn to value what God actually values. You look in the second half of verse 2, You'll see that Nehemiah is approached by someone who's known as one of his brothers. This could be someone of his physical family and other men from Judah. And Nehemiah then asks them a question. He says, and I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. He asked two questions. He asked about the city of Jerusalem, and he asked about the people who were living there. Now, the reason this is significant is because Nehemiah understood and knew and valued the promise of God, and he demonstrates that in these two questions that he asks. You notice that the passage mentions the word exile, and you have to remember where we are in the history of the Bible. That in 586, Judah and the city of Jerusalem was exiled by the Babylonian emperors. They were deported and taken off to Babylon. The city of Jerusalem was left in ruins and no one was left to live there. Approximately then around 538, some Jewish people were allowed to return to the city. But things never got back on their feet. Somewhere in the mid-400s B.C., we have a priest named Ezra and also a leader named Zerubbabel returning to restore the city somewhat. But they also met great opposition. And here was the thing for Nehemiah that he knew. He knew that God had promised that through the Israelite people, he was going to bless the world. This is what we find in Genesis 12. That the promise of God is not simply to Abraham and to his family. The promise is to that family that that family would become a blessing to all the nations. That promise then expands under Moses and it expands further under David. That someone was going to sit on David's throne and that God would dwell in Jerusalem and bring this blessing to all the nations. And so Nehemiah, as a good layman, as a theologian who understood, though, the promises of God, he got it that there was something desperately wrong. That God had promised to do something through the Israelite family, through the city of Jerusalem, to do it on behalf of the whole world, and everything was upside down. And so Nehemiah hears the report in verse 3. The remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. This is the answer about how the people are. There's great trouble and there's shame. And then he gives the answer about how the city is. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. And so the two things he inquired about, he learns this complete disaster. The walls are down, and the people are greatly troubled and in great shame. 
things are not the way they are supposed to be. And so how does Nehemiah respond? As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And this is the first great thing we learn from this awesome book is that Nehemiah valued the things that God valued. He loved what God loved, and he grieved what God grieved. He enters into mourning and lament and sadness because he was observing a gap. The gap is between two things. It's between the promise of God, what God says he is going to do in the world, and then when he looks at the reality of where the world actually is. And there's a tremendous gap between those two things. And Nehemiah looks at that gap, and it disturbs him. He doesn't look at it stoically and cynically. He doesn't give it the Presbyterian holy nod and then go about his day. No, it breaks him in half. He's saddened by it. He doesn't hide the emotion of it. He knows the glorious nature of the promises of God, and then he knows the awful realities of the present destruction. He sees that and he grieves. He valued what God valued. He had the priorities of the kingdom in his mind. And friends, what is so essential for us is that when we see that gap today, we join in that same kind of grief. When we see no gap or when the gap doesn't concern us, the alarm bell should be ringing for every one of us. If we don't perceive that there's a gap between what God has promised in Jesus and what we presently see in the world or what we presently see in the church, then we need to be deeply concerned. Because if we see no gap, the promises of God will always be cheap. They will never be something significant. They will never direct our lives. They'll always be a sideshow. We will always be inviting God just to join in what we're presently doing. But if we're to join in what God is doing from the fall of the world to the great consummation of all things in Jesus, we'll look at that gap and we'll have the courage and the boldness and we'll be willing to go with Nehemiah into the depths of that sadness because that's where it begins. It's valuing what God values. It's knowing his promises. It's understanding the theology of it and then looking at the world and comparing those two. And seeing that gap. But as the passage continues, it's not that Nehemiah just sees the gap and mourns. We actually find what he then does with that gap. And that leads us to our next two points. And the second we find in verses 4 through 11, we see that we must appreciate the primacy of prayer. This is what Nehemiah immediately does. As he grieves for the situation, as he looks at the gap between promise and reality, he then enters into a long season of prayer. Follow verse 4. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Now, there are some time markers in our passage, and we know that there's a four-month period between Nehemiah's learning of the situation in Jerusalem and then when he actually speaks to Artaxerxes. And so this wasn't a one-off prayer. He's speaking of a season of mourning and prayer and fasting in which he engages with God over this trouble and over this gap. It's not brief. 
And you'll note, though, some very important things about Nehemiah. When he learns of the gap and he enters into mourning and he then begins to pray, is that his first instinct was not to stroke a check and to send it off to his preferred political action campaign. Wasn't what he did. He didn't fire off a text to the pastor. He didn't leave the church. He didn't go watch more Fox News or CNN, whichever your preference perhaps to be, to get a little more angry and agitated about the situation. No, but rather, what Nehemiah does is he looks at the tragic condition and he goes to God in prayer. This is the first thing he does. And this can sound very pietistic and just very simple. But the motions of that for us are extremely important. Because especially as action-oriented Americans, this is sometimes the last thing that we do. That when we encounter a problem, we tend to roll up our sleeves, get dirt under our fingernails, and begin fixing it. Nehemiah takes a four-month sabbatical, (laughs) and he prays. He asks God to do something about it. There's many things that we could note about Nehemiah's prayer, but there are three in particular that I want to call your attention to. We'll focus on these. And the first thing is that in his prayer, he confesses his sins, his family's sins, and then also the sins and the failures of the church. Follow the prayer in verses 6 and 7. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses." A very full ownership taking place there of things that he was invested in, wrongs that he had committed, that his family had committed, and then things that the people had done. And he also confesses the sins of previous generations that he had nothing to do with. Nehemiah takes responsibility. And this is one of the most important motions in Christian prayer when we're looking at the gap and the problem in the world is he doesn't start pointing the finger And he especially doesn't go after the Persians. He doesn't go after the emperor, Artaxerxes. He rather begins by taking care of his own business in front of God as to what needed to be owned, as to why things were were, the way they were inside the church. And so he confesses his sins and the failures of the church. And this is what we too must do, is we take responsibility for it. And we begin with the house of God. We begin with the people of God. God actually will explain in later books of the Bible that this is where judgment first begins, and so we must deal with that first and be primarily occupied with that. He confesses those sins. Now, the second thing about the prayer is he also claims the promises of God. Follow in verses 8 through 10. He begins with a very important word, remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses. And then he quotes extensively From Deuteronomy chapter 30. It's just verbatim. If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. This is God speaking. If you are unfaithful to my covenant, if you don't keep these commandments, generally walking in faithfulness to them, then you will be scattered. That is sent into exile. That will be my measure of discipline for you. 
So if you're unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though you're outcast in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I've chosen to make, to make my name dwell there. In other words, God is saying he's going to restore things. When there is repentance, when his people return to him, he's a God who abounds in steadfast love and mercy. He loves to forgive. And that's what the discipline was all about. It's why they were removed, is to restore them. That they would look to him and call out to him. And so what Nehemiah does is he claims this promise of restoration from the book of Deuteronomy, written by the hand of Moses, long before And he claims that and says, God, this is who you promised to be. Now be that God for these people as they repent and turn and seek your blessing. This is what it looks like to take theology and to encounter it with prayer. Is that we bring all of that knowing and understanding about God. And then we apply it as we claim who he is. And this is what Nehemiah is doing. After he confesses his sins, he claims the promises of God. And asks God to be that God for these people this day. This is how he prays. Final thing that he does, you see in verse 11. It's almost shocking. Because he asks God to do something. It's very brief. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear in your name and give success to your servants today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. The prayer we have recorded seems to be one of the final ones Nehemiah prayed before going in for an audience with the emperor. But he simply says, give your servant success as he goes into the sight of this man. He asks God to do something. After praying for a season of time, he focuses on this supplication, and it's this moment of interaction where he is going to ask God to do something on his behalf. But you'll note that then when he enters into the presence of the king, We have this really unique line. It's hidden in there in verse 4, the second half of chapter 2, verse 4. Then the king said to me, what are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven. Now I love this, partly because it justifies so much of my prayer life. As he is in the middle of the crisis, what does he do? He prays again. Now we've just said he devoted four months to this prayer. But then as he meets the moment, the crisis, he throws up the help me Jesus prayer. Okay, That moment of desperation, of everything is coming due, everything I've been praying about, here is the moment. Help me, God. Save me, God. He's asking God to do something. He's asking God to take his promises and to make them real in the world. Jesus teaches us to pray the same way. Your kingdom come, your will be done. You can say it. On earth as it is in heaven. Make the world, make the earth look like heaven where your reign is complete and full. That's where we're heading. That's where the story consummates. That's where it's all completed. And that's to be the direction of our supplications. Where we're not just seeking our own interests. We're seeking the promises of God and how it completes and fills the creation and makes it right and new. And so our prayers, when we ask God to do something, they involve these longer seasons of 
very focused and disciplined prayer. And then it also, of course, involves those short moments, those bursts of, God, you've got to do something. God, help me in this. And that's what Nehemiah shows us in his prayers as he draws us into appreciating the primacy of it as the first action as we look at that gap between promise and reality. Now, the final thing that we find in verses 1 through 10, we see that we must learn to act in line with that promise. Nehemiah didn't stop at praying. And there was a good bit of fear, and it takes us appreciating the ancient Near Eastern court, that if you were the cupbearer, you were trusted and you were privileged. But Nehemiah also knew his place, that approaching the emperor, coming to a great king and making a request was not something that you did lightly at all. And so Nehemiah comes very humbly, and it says he's filled with fear. One of the reasons he's filled with fear, if you turn back in the book of Ezra, into chapter 4 and verse 21, you'll see that Ezra has been rebuilding the city of Jerusalem along with Zerubbabel. But those building efforts were halted. There were certain opponents and enemies who came after them and slanderously wrote to Artaxerxes and had him shut it down. And so this Persian king had sent out a decree shutting down the construction once. Nehemiah was coming into his presence and asking him to reverse his decree. Do leaders with lots of power like to reverse decrees? No. Do people in the leaders' cabinets always fare well? No. Nehemiah was rightly and justly anxious about this. He had been praying. And then Artaxerxes gives him the opportunity. What is it that's troubling you? He prays and then he acts. And this is what is so important, again, about Nehemiah, is after praying, he then risks. He makes his request known in the world, not simply to God, but what it's going to take. He has an action plan, and he's ready to go. And he steps into the fray. He steps into that gap between promise and reality, and he says, I've got to do something. He's convicted about it. And he steps into that moment at great risk to himself. Susa was the winter capital of the Persian king. Nehemiah was enshrined there. I suppose it would have been much more comfortable than returning to Jerusalem. And he's willing to leave all of that behind him. He puts it away, much like our Lord Jesus leaving the comforts of heaven that we learn in Philippians 2. And he humbles himself. Nehemiah is willing to enter into that great disaster because he sees the gap between promise and reality, and he takes a risk. He took a chance. We know that he also did so calculatingly. You'll note the month that is mentioned. It was the month of Nisan. That was the first month of the year, and there was elaborate festivals and ceremonies in ancient Near Eastern religions, particularly amongst the Persians, of celebrating the new year. It's often used to celebrate the emperor's birthday, and there was a custom, a habit, in which the emperor would allow people to make a generous request from him. And he was then obliged to give it. Nehemiah most likely waited for that very opportune moment. He was wise and he was shrewd about what he did. 
It was not just pietistic in which he prayed and then went and asked, but he was calculated and planned. He exercised both the primacy of prayer and then wise planning, and he got to work. He acted. He did something. This is what it looks like to value what God values, to love what God loves. We pray and we act. We take all of that great theological learning and we take it to God and we ask him to do something and then we step out. We take that next very dangerous, perilous step into acting into the world because God's promises are immense. The promise of God in Jesus Christ is that he forgives our sins, but it doesn't stop there. That promise continues to begin to grow That is also that God would be at work in our lives to transform us and change us day to day. But it doesn't stop there. The promise is that God will one day take your body and raise it and renew it. That he'll bring it out of the dust. That he'll speak a word like he did to Adam and brought him out of the dust. That he'll do the same to you again. And he'll bring you not simply into heaven but into a new heavens and new earth. That's made right and whole, that's free from the pollution of sin. And so what we're invited to today is to step out into this world that has a tremendous gap between that promise and its current reality. And we're told that Jesus is the reigning king and lord of all the nations of the earth. And therefore we're to go and make disciples of all of those nations. Proclaiming the one who is the true and the right king. And that's the risky act. That's what Nehemiah was doing, was risking the promise of God, and that's what we're invited to do as well. To go out and gratefully serve King Jesus, making him known in our actions and in our words and our thoughts. And we're to ask him, what is the promise that he makes? What's the promise that he makes to you and to your family? What's the promise that he makes? And how do we then bring ourselves in line with all of that promise? And what does it then look like? And for us to consider and to ask what that looks like across every sphere of our lives. What does it look like in our families? What does it look like with our children? What does it look like with our grandchildren? What does it look like in our vocations, the jobs that we do? What does it look like in our finances? What does it look like for where we live? We have to consider it across every single piece of our lives. Is how do we bring ourselves into line with the promises of God? That's what Nehemiah welcomes us into. And we come at it because of this gracious God. The one who was willing to leave God's right hand. To enter into the tremendous gap. And he humbled himself, taking on the form of a servant. Not counting his equality with God as something to be grasped or held on to. But rather he lays that down in order to die a death on a cross. To reconcile you, to reconcile me to God. And that he would then take up his great reign. That's the God who's made these promises to you. Take them up on it. Act on them. Let's pray. And Father, as we approach this new book, we ask that you would teach us just how to bring our lives in line with promise. And this is not something that we do just once in our lives, but again and again, hearing your promise and looking at the gap of the world, that the walls are down, there's great trouble and shame. And so 
Send your spirit and lead us and guide us into what it is to step into that gap. Help us, God. We pray in Jesus' name.